0: This morning, Lord, help us to hear the things you have for each one of us, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, In Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 3, verses 1 and 2, when Matthew tells us about the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry, he says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 1 chapter later, Matthew 4, when Matthew tells us about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he says it in these words, verses 12 and 17, he says, When Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At the beginning of both John the Baptist and Jesus' ministry, they say exactly the same thing. Repent, repent and get ready for what's coming, for God's kingdom. If you look up the term repent, this is a Palm Sunday teaching with a twist, sort of. We'll get to the Palm Sunday text here in a little bit. But if you look at uh, repent in the English dictionary, our word comes from the Latin, re again, and pent um, which means a uh, punishment or pain or sorrow. Penalty comes from the same root. A penal colony, a place to suffer, comes from that same root. So that, that English word repent and the Latin has to do with sorrow over what's happened in the past, over what we've done. That's not the primary uh, meaning of the word we're looking at this morning. There's a Hebrew word in the Old Testament that has more of that connotation. Sorrow over what I've done or something that's happened in the past. The word we're looking at this morning, though, the Greek is metanoia. And it means either change or something that comes after. And mind, thought, thinking, sometimes spirit. So the word here this morning isn't so much sorrow about something in the past. It's a change of mind. It's a change of thinking, so that if I <clears throat> if my daughter's going to do something I think is foolish, I might say to her something like, think it over. Consider what you're about to do. When I say that, I'm inviting her to think again, to repent, to change her mind, to change her outlook, to change her thoughts. And with the beginning of both John's ministry and Jesus, they both invite the nation of Israel to do the same thing. Change the way you're thinking so that God's kingdom which is coming in you'll be prepared for. That means in their present state they weren't ready. They needed to change what they were thinking about. They needed to change their orientation, change their thoughts. So they both call for this revolution as it were in the nation's thinking, this repentance, then my question becomes, did it take? And that's where we're going to go to Palm Sunday. We're going to read a couple passages related to Palm Sunday. You're free to turn there if you want. We're going to look in both Luke 19, one of the better-known accounts, and then John 12 also. <coughs> excuse me. And if you remember leading up to this, Jesus and the disciples have come down from Galilee they're back in the south around Jerusalem and typically each night they're spending their nights in Bethany which is to the east of Jerusalem in fact if you look at a topographical map you know we call them mountains i mean these are mole hills as far as you know western continents or other continents you know Jerusalem's on a bit of a hill Mount Zion and then there's the Mount of Olives next to them and then Bethany's over here on the east side of it And that's the the case. Jesus is coming from Bethany. He's coming over the Mount of Olives, down the Kidron Valley. He'll come back up into Jerusalem. Luke 19.35, it says, They brought it, that is the disciples brought a colt, to Jesus. And they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, coming down the hill now, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. And by the way, remember that Bethany is the site where Lazarus was raised from the dead. And this doesn't follow long after this event, so the people who are coming are also remembering Jesus raised a guy from the dead on the other side of this hill. They were saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees and the multitude said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. John writes of the same event this way in John 12, verses 12 through 15. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast... And remember that for the Jews, Passover is one of those three events every year in which all the men, at least, of the nation were supposed to come and gather in Jerusalem. And now with the Jewish world scattered basically around the whole Roman Empire, Jerusalem became a very busy hub this time of year especially because there were Jews coming in from all of the Roman world to be in Jerusalem for Passover later this same week. So John 12 again, On the next day the great multitude who would come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees. They went out to meet him, and they began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your King is coming, seated on. On a donkey's colt. Now, put this in perspective of John and Jesus' call back in Matthew 3 and 4. Repent, get ready, the kingdom's coming. And the kingdom's coming means the king is coming. And here on Palm Sunday, you know what? It looks like the call was heeded. It looks like there was a change of mind nationally. That their thinking had been overturned. That they were ready to receive the kingdom because here's Jesus and they're hailing him as the king. So, So far, so good. It looks like they've repented, their minds are changed, and they're uh, ready to go. They heeded the call, or did they? We're going to scoot ahead now to Good Friday. Now remember in these passages, Jesus and the disciples have had the Last Supper Thursday night. and, And by the way, depending on whose commentaries you read, there's divergence of opinions on when exactly the Last Supper took place, that is what day of the week. Uh, Some people will tell you it happened Tuesday, some Wednesday, some Thursday, some Friday. Um, For the sake of conversation, we're going to say Thursday. And uh, they've had the Last Supper on Thursday night. They've been up on the Mount of Olives. That night, Jesus was praying. And then the officials from the temple have come out. They've arrested Jesus. You remember they've gone through a sham trial essentially at night. And they, they want to, as they've wanted all along, if you remember the gospel accounts, they want to get rid, that is, the Jewish leaders, of this pesky guy from Galilee. So they want to get him put to death. They don't have the authority under Roman jurisdiction to put anyone to death themselves. When you read accounts of the Jews kind of spur of the moment, killing someone, it was a riot. And if they were caught, they'd be punished by the Romans. They didn't have the authority to kill someone, to put someone to death. So at Matthew 27, they've brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate so they can get a death sentence. At verse 11, Jesus stood before the governor. While he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he made no answer. Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge so that the governor was quite amazed at this feast the governor was accustomed to release for the multitude any one prisoner they wanted when they were holding at that time a notorious prisoner called barabbas when therefore they were gathered together Pilate said to them who do you want me to release for you barabbas he's picking a loser he thinks when he says this of course a loser barabbas or Jesus, who is called Messiah, your king. He knew that because of envy, they had delivered him up. For what it's worth, Pilate's guilty here, but he's trying to get Jesus off. He knows the leaders have brought him because they're envious. He thinks if he appeals to the crowd with whom Jesus is popular, they will ask for Jesus. This is the same crowd that hailed him, right, on Palm Sunday. So he thinks this is safe. I give them the option of a loser, Barabbas, or the one they've hailed as king, Jesus. The crowd will choose the king. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. Last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. The governor answered and said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? They said... Barabbas, that is, the multitude. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, They all said, Let him be crucified. He said, Why, what evil has he done? They kept shouting all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. That is, we take full responsibility for his death. Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. Now my question here becomes, what in the world happened What happened between Palm Sunday and Good Friday? These crowds, no no, no doubt, the crowd is not, homogeneously speaking, exactly the same makeup Friday that it was Sunday. But in large part, these are the same folks. These are the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they're the pilgrims who've come to Jerusalem for Passover. These are largely the same people who were there Sunday saying, Hosanna to the Messiah, our King, who now on Friday are crying out, crucify him. So what happened? What happened between Sunday and Friday? This is my suggestion. Although the crowds were willing to go along with Jesus, and they loved the thought of him being the military and political leader, they had no real change of mind. They had no real change of heart. They had no real repentance related to Him and to God so that they were easily swayed. So going back to the call in Matthew 3 and 4, the call to the nation was change your mind, change your thinking, and be ready. And on Palm Sunday, it looks like it took. But on Good Friday, it's clear that it didn't. And I think the only, uh, in my mind, satisfactory answer as to why is because there was in the first place nationally no genuine repentance. That is not to say at an individual level that there was not genuine repentance, a change of mind, a change of outlook, a change of heart. We look at Jesus' disciples, you look at people like Mary Magdalene and others, Real change of heart and mind and thinking. Real repentance individually, but nationally, no sign of real repentance. Now, I've got a couple analogies for you. These are poor, I confess, but you remember not too long ago, George Bush Sr. was president. And you remember, vice president for eight years under Reagan, a very popular president, great economy, great times, Bush was VP, easily won presidency in 88. His presidency was fine. He flip-flopped on a couple things and caught flack for that. But it was fine, and then it went from fine to great because of the first Iraq war. And if you remember, if you read the papers at the time, if you listen to any commentary... George Bush was the man of the hour. George Bush was the man of the decade. His approval ratings couldn't have been any higher or any better. He was the hero of the moment. George Bush was. Good as it got. Top of the heap. And then the elections of 92 came through. And what happened? You know, George Bush was voted out of office by a philanderer from Arkansas. And no doubt there were lots of reasons for this. And it's the economy stupid is the famous or infamous um, slogan related to that campaign. But Bush went from hero of the nation to GOAT overnight and lost to a second-rate politician from Little Rock. It was ridiculous. He was up here one month, and he's kicked out of office the next. Now, one better than that, frankly and much more poignant in history is that of Winston Churchill. And you guys know, if you've heard me in the past, he's one of my favorite guys in history and certainly in the last century. If you remember, Churchill's life had had its ups and downs, I mean certainly, and he lived to a ripe old age and he was in and out of politics, but in the autumn of his life, when he's kind of a has-been, in the bleachers, as it were, of political life in Great Britain, He is called back to be prime minister to save England during World War II. When he thinks the game's over, he's called back, he's back on the court. And you know, probably besides U.S. might and military, there was no single key figure that rallied essentially the Allies more than Winston Churchill did. He was the epitome of British resistance to the Germans. And he took, Not single-handedly, but it was his key leadership that led Britain through the darkest days of their history. You know, that little island off the coast of Europe, they weren't sure they were going to remain a nation. And it didn't look like they would. And Winston Churchill was this key leader in this key role that led them to victory. And, you know, he twisted the arms of uh, the United States and Russia. He did everything it took to save Great Britain. I mean both within the nation and without, and he was a real hero. And I want to read to you some words from one of his biographers, John Charmley, from his book Churchill, The End of Glory. He's describing here May 8, 1945, V.E. Day, Victory in Europe Day. They'd actually tried to put this off, the Germans had already surrendered, but the tumult in great Brit- britain was growing so loud that they had to announce it it was the cat was already out of the bag they had to announce it so on may 8th they did and churchill goes on the radio to make this announcement and this is what i'm going to read to you from, from here at 3 p.m. may 8th he broadcast the news of the german surrender to the nation from number 10 downing street and as he came out to go to the house that is parliament the staff lined the path to the garden door to applaud him His eyes brimming with tears, Churchill left for the commons. Horse Guards Parade, Birdcage Walk, and Great George Street were, like Parliament itself, packed with crowds. All along the way, the Prime Minister was greeted with cries of, Good old Winnie! It took half an hour to travel a quarter of a mile, and every minute of every yard was filled with the outpouring of the emotions of relief, pride, and thankfulness. Churchill had won the war, And historical immortality. This sounds like Jesus' Palm Sunday march to me. This this would have looked like it. Churchill is surrounded by throngs all singing his praises, all delighting in him and the victory he's led them to. After he addresses Parliament, he says he concluded by doing what Lloyd George had done a quarter of a century before, after World War I proposing that the house adjourn to St. Margaret's Church to give humble and reverent thanks to Almighty God for our deliverance from the great threat of German domination. After the ceremony, Churchill went back through Central Hall, once more the target of the plaudits of the crowd. From the balcony of the Ministry of Health overlooking Whitehall, he saluted the people, telling them, "'This is your victory.'" This brought the only note of disagreement of the day as the crowd roared back, No, it is yours. It was, Churchill declared, the victory of the cause of freedom in every land. That was May 8, 1945. On July 5, 1945, less than two months later, Churchill and his party lost re-election in a landslide. The champion of the people was unceremoniously voted out of office by a campaigner touting social reform. It's the economy stupid, had struck earlier, so to speak. His wife Clementine tried to comfort him by saying that it was probably a blessing in disguise. Churchill could only grunt that it was very well disguised. (laughs) Now asked the same question again. What happened between May 8th and July 5th? Churchill was the same guy he'd been all through the war. There was no change in Churchill. Same guy, same thing. And I'm simplifying this a bit because there were political issues. There were huge issues uh, that needed to be addressed. And Churchill was recognized as this great war hero. The question became, will he be a good peacetime hero? And it's interesting, actually... He is booted out. This was the worst, if you will, this was the quickest and worst political turnaround, perhaps, in history, or at least in recent history. Um, Churchill was actually elected prime minister again, uh, four or five years later, kind of remarkably. But if you say what happened, uh, the people repented. They repented the wrong way as far as Churchill was concerning. They had, in a sense, never bought into Churchill as a leader in any time or all time. So when the war was over, they repented of their attitude towards Churchill as the savior of England, and they now thought he's not good enough for what we need. They changed their mind the wrong direction as far as Churchill was concerned. They repented just the wrong way. You know, and like Jesus marching in on Palm Sunday, to all this acclaim and Bush's approval ratings being as high as they can get and Churchill being the man of the hour and the decade and the century, the repentance in each case, we could say historically, was the wrong direction. The change in mind was one of rejection, not one of acceptance. In Jesus' case, the repentance people had was in rejecting him. It wasn't the call to repentance back in Matthew 3 and 4. Change your mind. Change the way you think about yourself, the world, God, and his kingdom so that you'll be ready to embrace him and his kingdom. And the nation of Israel was not ready. Now, I love Palm Sunday. And uh, this is, if I could uh, get in a time machine and go back to a New Testament scene, this would probably be the scene I would go to, to see Jesus right into Jerusalem is kind of, in my mind, as good as it gets. And that's not to belittle that theologically his death and resurrection are the the highlight, not minimizing that. But personally for me, Palm Sunday would be as good as it gets. To hear the crowds in the city welcoming Jesus as Messiah would be as good as it gets. And that's a great thing to rejoice on related to Palm Sunday today. But this morning, I want to focus on this issue of repentance for ourselves. I've talked about repentance in the nation of Israel. Uh, The call was there. And there is some national embracing of Jesus, certainly, Palm Sunday is a great indicator of. But then clearly, we find that the repentance was faulty. It was incomplete, or it lacked some genuine level of repentance because the nation as a whole rejects him. At an applicational level... Um, I want to take today as an opportunity to ask ourselves the hard questions. Have we heeded the call, so to speak? Will we enter next Sunday, Easter? You know, we'll, we'll come back and we'll celebrate Easter, resurrection. But will we do so like the Jews in Jesus' day, kind of at a shallow level? They hadn't repented. There hadn't been a genuine change of mind for most people. And for us, it's easy to go through the motions of recognizing a Palm Sunday or an Easter Sunday or a Christmas or whatever, but with no real upheaval, no real turning, no real change of mind or of heart of attitudes and actions in our own lives. And what I'm inviting us to do this morning is to think about our own lives and apply the call to repentance to ourselves. Most of us do not uh, go through life trying to think wrong thoughts about ourselves or sin or God or the future or God's kingdom or our service or anything else. We don't consciously say, I'm going to do the wrong thing, think the wrong thoughts, etc. But typically what happens to us is we get a little hardened over time. There's a couple verses in Proverbs where It's describing ruin, and it says this is what ruin takes, a little folding of the hands and a little nodding of the head. He says that's how destruction comes on you. It's not that you plan for it. It's not that you plan for the garden in the back to grow up with weeds. It just does. See, if you're not vigilant, that's just what happens because we're sinners living on planet Earth. That's the default position. That's what happens over time. So it's not that we plan to think wrong thoughts and, and live wrong lives. It's just that typically that's what happens. Weeds grow in our garden and it requires vigilance on our part. Paul talks about this thought of both hardening and renewal and repentance in Ephesians 4. Listen to what he says and listen to the contrast. He is writing to Christians, remember this, he's writing to Christians in Ephesus, and he tells these Christians walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. Don't live the way the unenlightened, unrepentant Gentiles among you live. In the futility of their mind, their thoughts are vain. They're darkened in their understanding, that is, their thoughts are darkened. They're excluded from the life of God because of ignorance. This isn't just information, but it's the truth. It's their thinking. It's their thoughts. Because of the hardness of their hearts, they've become callous. See, over time, you know how calluses develop. You rub the same spot over time and the skin builds up a hard spot there. That's callous. He says they've become callous because they've gotten used to things. And this happens to us spiritually. When we refuse repentance in one area of our life over a long period of time, we develop a callous to that sin or that wrong thought. As we accommodate it day after day or week after week, we grow hardened like the Gentiles around us. He says at verse 20, you didn't learn Christ in this way. He says in verse 23, you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You need repentance related to the way you think, your thought life. Put on the new self, the new spiritual life, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness, holiness, and truth. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians he had written them a letter that grieved them. And he says, I rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Some people argue whether this letter was 1 Corinthians or an unknown lost letter. It doesn't matter. He'd written them to say, you've got some things that are out of order and you need to make them right. And he said when he wrote them, he knew he'd made them sorrowful, but now he was glad because the sorrow was to... Repentance. It was to a change of mind. They changed their thinking. That was the intent of his letter. Just as John and Jesus called Israel to repentance, Paul had called them to repentance to change their mind. He says, The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret. It leads to salvation. The sorrow of the world produces death. You know, sometimes you and I, I'm sure... This is true of me, so I suspect it's true of you. We will entertain sinful, deficient thoughts, attitudes, lifestyles, whatever. And we'll do the same thing over and over again. And every time we'll go to the Lord and we'll say, Lord, we're really sorry. And we are, sort of, but then again, we're really not. And it's this sorrow of the world. You know, all the guys who've been caught up in the corporate scandals? Boy, are they sorry, aren't they? Publicly, when they stand before those courts and those hearings, aren't they sorry? Boy, they're sorry. What kind of sorrow is that? Is it a sorrow of repentance, a change of mind? Or is it a sorrow, I got caught and I got to pay the piper? Yeah, you bet. So Paul says you can be sorry and have no repentance. You can feel remorse, Judas felt remorse, with no repentance. Repentance. Peter felt remorse after he denied Christ, but he repented. He changed his mind. And this is a call to repentance, not just sorrow. Um, You know how much worth this kind of sorrow, sorrow of the world is? You know, zero. It's worthless. Uh, Kids are like this oftentimes. You know you'll reprove a kid for doing wrong, and they turn right back around and do their do the same thing, you know, there's this momentary sorrow, I got caught, maybe I got spanked, missed a meal, whatever, but there's no change of thinking. And this is not exalting the mind so much. This is not philosophical, and it's not academic. If I say this is information, it's not information in a cold sense, two plus two equals four. Because we are moral creatures, truth is apprehended morally, But truth is still objective, and in that sense, academic, philosophical, whatever you want to say. I hope hope I'm making this clear. I'm probably not. Um, It takes a, a morally sensitive heart to apprehend truth. If I tell you that some of the brightest minds in the world believe that the world and the universe and all life came from nothing, goes along and creates itself through random processes over time, I can tell you I think those people are insane. They lack a real tie to reality. It's ludicrous. Something doesn't come from nothing. Your children know that. What's their problem? It's not academic, and it's not philosophical. It's moral. They cannot perceive truth because they don't want to hear it. So they don't change their thinking because they don't want the repercussions of what a change of mind brings. They know what they don't want and what they don't want precludes them from accepting what anyone else in their right mind can say is obvious, objectively. doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out something doesn't come from nothing. Order doesn't come from chaos. It's information that we need, but it's information morally apprehended. And this requires, if you will, a submission to God, a willingness to say, you're God and I'm not. I will humble myself before you even when I don't like it because you're God and I'm not. And when we're willing to do that, our minds can be renewed. It requires the moral function on our part to acknowledge and humbly submit to God. So it's information, this repentance is information. It's truth, but it's morally apprehended. So God talks to us through Paul and He says, renew your mind, change the way you're thinking, and lay aside the old self and the old way of thinking. Now. You know, the garden grows weeds by itself. We don't need to work at that. Renewal requires work on your part and mine. In this sense, repentance or a change of mind requires work on your part and mine. Need I say, again, that if you're not reading God's word, your mind is not being renewed. You and I cannot have any ongoing sense of repentance, change of mind, if we're not in the scriptures. Can't happen, won't happen, it's impossible. Our minds are bombarded day after day, week after week with all the messages of the world around us. You look at magazines, you watch television, you hear the radio, you're on the internet, you name it. Your mind is taking in information and a lot of it is weeds. It's weeds, it's the seed of weeds. If you're not in the scriptures regularly, your mind cannot be renewed. It won't happen. So the call to renewal is always a call to the truth of God's word. Repentance for us always requires us to acknowledge what's true. God says the truth is embodied in his word, the scriptures. So a call to repentance, to think again, to change our thinking, has to be tied what does the scripture say about where we're at, what we're doing, whatever. For the rest of the uh, morning and for next week, my hope is that we're going to take a minute here and we're just going to be alone with the Lord and and say, Lord, what areas do I need repentance in, a change of mind, a change of heart, a change of thinking, a change of attitude in. we'll celebrate Easter, and we'll sing God's praises here in a moment. And my hope is that we do so thoughtfully, not like the crowds on Palm Sunday in Israel. They rejoice for a moment. Where'd they go on Friday? I hope that we're rejoicing or praising or worshiping thoughtfully, repentantly, with renewed minds, changed thoughts, changed hearts. Uh, If we're not, we're just going through the motions. We're just going through the motions. I hope we can do so thoughtfully. Last uh, thing here as I close. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. This is great for Easter because it has to do with the Passover. He's comparing the church in Corinth to a Passover meal. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. And just remember, the Jewish Passover, one of the things they did in the original Passover in Egypt, they got rid of all the, anything in their house that contained leaven. Leaven represented probably both sin, but it represented more than that. It represented their tie to their old life. Um, I know some bakers in here, and probably if you've baked bread in the past, you've baked, I think it's called friendship bread. You get a lump of dough from someone else that got it from someone else, that got it from someone else, that got it from someone else. else. When you make your bread, the yeast in that lump of dough causes your bread to rise. And as long as you take a lump off, a section off, the life, if you will, of your bread continues on and on and on and on. And that life is tied back to, to the first loaf of bread, When the Jews got rid of the leaven, they weren't just getting rid of sin, they were turning away from their entire old life in Egypt. So Paul says here to the Christians in Corinth, you be like those Jews at Passover, get rid of the old leaven. That's the old life and it's the old way of thinking. He says, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the feast not with old leaven, not with old thinking, not with unrepentant, unchanged lives, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Truth. Our minds acclimated to what's true. So this morning join me, and this week joined me, just in a time of reflection. Lord, what areas of my life do I need an upheaval in, a change of mind in? a change of heart in? What thoughts am I entertaining that I need to turn around from? What truth do I need to embrace? What weeds do I need to cut down? Join me for just a minute, and let's just get before the Lord individually and personally and just ask Him for renewal, repentance in those areas of our life where we need a change of thinking. Father, thanks that it's your doing. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has died, has paid for the sins of the world. Father, there's no greater call than Jesus' death and resurrection for our repentance, for our change of thinking. And Lord, the truth is, most of the time we don't try to bring in or entertain or keep faulty, wayward thinking. We just do. Father, may your Spirit search our thoughts and our minds and help us see the areas in our life where we've not been renewed. And Lord, in those areas, help us not to entertain the world's kind of sorrow, but help us submit ourselves to you as those who are alive from the dead and walk in truth and life. Lord, help us to lay aside the old leavened lump, the old life, and embrace the new. Father, help us to be saturated in your Word. I know that just by being in your Word daily, we're confronted by truth. And it helps us, Lord, to change our thinking again. And Lord, the truth is that all our life on this planet, we need repentance. We need our thoughts to be renewed. We need to change our mind about the way we view one thing or another. We'll never be totally done with this, Lord, but in the areas that you want us to be at work at and aware of now, help us to submit to you, to change our mind, to repent. Lord, thanks for the day when your son rode into Jerusalem. Thanks for the cries of Hosanna. Lord, more than that, thanks for your death on Friday and your resurrection on Sunday. And Lord, along with that, thanks for your promise to come again. Lord, you rode into Jerusalem once on a donkey and you're destined to ride in again on a white horse. And you've promised that we'll be returning with you with the armies of heaven Lord, we are thrilled to be called by your name. We we rejoice in you as our Savior. We do say, Lord, with them, Hosanna. God save now. We say with Paul, Maranatha. Lord, return soon. In Jesus' name, amen.